0: I believe we are live. This is Steve Williams here in FRA podcast number one. And uh, I'm going to roughly title this game-based approach versus technique for stroke development. And I believe we have Coach Bob B.O.B.
1: I am indeed here, Steve. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. How are you today? Fantastic. It's ironic just as your little email came. My dog decided to bark like crazy downstairs. But I'm guessing you can't hear it.
0: Nope. Can't hear it. And that's awesome. the beauty of live audio that we can edit, but we probably won't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nope. Exactly. That's good. So all... My little my little recording studio is good so far. I love it. Yep. I think we're we're both
0: loud and clear. And so before we do intros, I'll tell everybody a little bit about the format of these. This is obviously audio only as of now, we don't have any live commenting and questions coming in, but we can always address any comments we get. If we have more than two listeners,
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: we can address those in the next episode. We might do these on Tuesdays, possibly more often in the future, but Tuesdays for sure going for, Oh, 30 minutes to an hour. We probably cut it off after an hour that people have enough of us after that. Right.
1: Yeah. And I'm getting old enough. I probably need to go to the restroom. <laughs>
0: We'll lay off on the coffee, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't like the layoff on the coffee, though.
0: So, so there we go. We can have guests on these uh, this little format We're using this thing called Anchor, and uh, um, I'm still learning how to share these on Spotify or YouTube or however that looks, but we'll figure that out. But uh, guests are possible, and it's not a live format, but it's a cool audio format. We can still get some feedback and hopefully get some information out there.
1: Yep. Sounds so
0: good. Um, yeah, as as the co-host, do you want to start? You do a quick intro. And uh, and then I'll and then I'll and then I'll go.
1: I am a, a longtime friend of Steve's. I was a tennis player. Grew up playing junior tennis. Played college tennis, D one tennis. Uh, that was in the late mid to late seventies and early eighties. Was my playing days, the wooden era, I call it. Although I did finish up with an oversized Prince graphite racket, so I'm not uh, not completely of the wooden and gut era. Uh, and then I took a little time off from tennis and got into coaching in the mid 90s, about 94, 95. And I've been sort of off and on, hobbyist, part time, avocation, coaching tennis, uh, club pro, uh, helped some local juniors, high school kids, helped out some college programs. So that's what I've been doing for the last, what I guess that's getting me 25 years now.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I, you know, just a quick thing on me I played high school college tennis, coached high school college tennis. Um, Not at the B O B level, but was reasonably successful. And um, my priority right now is our Front Range Academy, which we'll talk about today. A a group of nice kids here in Colorado competing in the mountain states. And we've done travel trips, local trips, and um, have a good group going right now in Greeley indoors. Um, I also run Adidas Tennis Camps at a CSU Fort Collins. I don't do a lot with 10 and unders. We'll have a podcast about that. Um, or adults. And that's just purely cause I don't have time, but, uh, we have a great group of kids that, that take a lot of time and need a lot of attention with, uh, with all that they have going on with competing and everything else and trying to help them progress and develop. So, um, uh, my contact, you can reach me, you can find us on williamstennisschool.com or tenniscamper.com. And then for B-O-B, you can contact me or, um, yeah, you could be actually pretty tough to reach where are we finding you today?
1: uh i'm at the trapping cabin again undisclosed location it's a mountain location today that's beautiful day
0: oh fantastic yeah fantastic so you yeah. should probably give, give
1: them give me your email address to make it easy for them they can touch yeah. with you then they can if, if they want to get something to me at some point you'll for sure give it to me
0: absolutely best way to reach me is steve at williams just uh common spelling so piece of cake so um yeah so we'll get we'll get started here. Um, this whole game-based approach, this is a, there's a guy in Canada that's, that's doing this and is kind of a pioneer with this, correct?
1: Yeah. A guy named, uh, well, yeah, the way I discovered it, the the approach has been around for a while. In fact, there's something called teaching games for understanding. If people are physical educators, uh, gym teachers or something that in the sort of the motor learning motor skill world has been around since, I think it's like the early eighties or something like that. And and this guy, Wayne Alderton, under the direction of a guy named Louis Cahier, who's a very famous tour doubles coach. Now he's in he's in uh, England now, works for the LTA, uh, works for, with uh, uh, the Murray. Well, not Andy too much because Andy's a singles guy, but Jamie Murray. And he started off in Canada. He's a French Canadian guy. And he sort of set this program up for Tennis Canada, a game based approach to tennis. And I discovered this sort of in the middle of my early middle of my career through Wayne Elderton and Tennis Canada. And he's got a website called Ace Coach that I started reading back in, I was trying to think earlier today, when was that, like 2003 or four or five, somewhere in there. And I traded some emails with him and everything. And so that was that was sort of mid-path of transition from me, from a sort of standard, typical way of coaching, stroke-based to a lot more uh, game-based, I guess you'd call it now.
0: Yeah, and we'll touch on what I do with Front Range Academy. You've been involved as a coach in it. You've traveled with us to Salt Lake and Vegas, our two little tour stops in the Intermountain section. And um, I think we're helping kids have fun and get better at tennis, right? And that's, I mean, that's right there on the A site is get players to play and help them learn to play better. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: When I went to the USTA high performance coaching camp in Boca Raton, Florida, years back, we had, Jose Higueras was down there, former number six in the world, worked with Michael Chang, Pete Sampras, um, you know, USTA hired him to be in charge of what they called elite player development. And the first thing he said was to all of us coaches was get kids off that baseline in a line, get the coach off the tee. If you're going to feed, feed from the baseline, but let's just get away from feeding in general. Wow. And, and then of course, but, Even recently, I I mean, parents have told me a hundred times, you know, hey, why isn't there a coach on every team, you know, feeding these kids and working on stroke development on each court? That's what parents want to see for a lot of reasons. But that might not be the best way to develop players, huh?
1: No, it's interesting, too, that Jose said that, you know, Jose is a Spanish guy. He's older than I am. He was a fairly prominent player. He's probably in his, I'm going to say mid to late 60s and he's Spanish and he the Spanish model, you know, in the last, say, 15, 20 years, that's, frankly, I would call it infected. Some coaching around here has been the hand feeding. So not only have they gotten off the tee, they've gotten closer to the to the person. They've made it what I consider less representative rather than more representative. And we can get into what all that means, that, that jargon. But now the, now the Spanish model is to stand 10 feet from your player and toss balls. And move them around the court a little bit, and really isolate strokes. So it'd be interesting to get Jose's take on the quote Spanish method that's been you know so successful. Spain's been successful. Question is, has it been successful because of that, or are they successful and now people are mimicking something that was not exactly was associated with it, but didn't necessarily cause it? And and I would argue that if if the Spanish are successful because of that, it's a very small part of why they're successful.
0: Yeah, I don't. I think his main thing was if you're going to feed, do it from the baseline where the ball actually comes from. Yeah, Maybe right. he's evolved and changed since then. I mean, we even know that Nick Volteri one time was asked, "How did you get some of these guys like Agassi so awesome at tennis?" And you know, he admitted that he said, "I sent them to court 42 <laughs> and told them to play matches and check in four hours later." <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, going with the theory that it's not rocket science. So um, we know that point play is you know what kids want it's the most fun it's how I run my groups and it seems to work the best but um, even that I call that soft toss when you stand right next to the kid and you do an underhand toss and the only advantage of that to me is is communication I'm, I'm right next to the kid they can hear me I can oh in theory see things a little bit better but I I don't see a lot of advantages to that I at least a thousand times when I put a kid through some kind of underhand feed from five to ten feet away, and then I put them on a tennis court to play actual points, they miss the first fifty shots. <laughs> it it never fails. I mean, nothing about a fed ball simulates actual tennis, correct? Uh, usually, unless it's uh, unless you actually you know put some spin on the feed or um, vary it up a little bit. But this idea right. that we feed right to the strike zone and yell at kids to have a low to high swing and work on form,
1: maybe not the best way. Right, yeah, that you're, you're taking all of the information or almost all of the information that the, that the player is going to get from the environment of the tennis match, the opponent, how the opponent moves and hits shots, how the ball you know, comes to them at various speeds and spins, you know the speed of the opponent's racket, the sound of the ball off of that racket, the variance in the speed and spin of the ball that, that comes at them. All those things are eliminated and stripped out from that process. And there, there is a school of thought that believes that that is the best way to teach tennis, to teach technique, that you do wanna strip away all of the contextual information and so they can just focus on that one thing, isolating that stroke. And there's a lot of smart people that go down that path and, and firmly believe in that and that it's repetition, 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 and that's the way you master sport skills. And there's been a lot of research in the last 20 years that really came out of a guy named Nikolai Bernstein in Russia in the early part of the 20th century that, that uh, runs counter to that. And there's an awful lot of smart people that have gone down that path and said, no, you really can't. It's not possible for people to actually even repeat the exact same motion over and over again. And the way that you become skilled and adept at sporting things is by variability. And variability both in your movement and in the practice uh, environment that you, interta- that you undertake. And it's that variability in input and movement that creates less variability in outcome. So it's, it's 180 degree opposite viewpoint on how you do skill acquisition. So then you and
0: I admittedly, were not great coaches in our own minds early, early on, but I think we changed and evolved. And we went down that path, both of us separately before we even knew each other and realized that some of the kids weren't progressing the way that I feel like I have them progressing now. And I used to run around the groups and look, and I could see the kids with what I thought was really good form and some of the best technique and mechanics, and they would miss all the time and lose all the time. And then (laughs) other kids that maybe had form, you wouldn't necessarily teach to anybody were winning a lot. And it's just interesting. So, uh, you know, would you agree with that? I mean, some of the, some of the kids with the best form are, 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 you know, they miss a lot. And clearly, that's not the number one reason for misses. As a technique and mechanics is not the number one reason for misses.
1: Well, that, that's a lot that goes into that. I mean, obviously, the physical movement of the racket as, it, as it's in contact with the ball is absolutely the reason why you make or miss a shot. Okay. okay? It's, the, it's that very brief interaction between a tennis racket and a tennis ball that is going to determine where it goes. Now sure. you might get a gust of wind, right? Something like that that happens afterwards. But the question is, well, how, do you, how do you do all that stuff and what does it look like? And the idea that there is a form, a model form, and Wayne Elderton talks about that, the game-based guy, that a lot of people like to teach to a model. They like a look. They want a swing to be a certain way. And that's a little bit of a tricky problem because what you want is a swing that's functional that gets the gets the job done that if your goal is to produce a high speed forehand that that you can hit the different parts of the court off of different balls coming at different speeds and different locations and so forth there's kind of a lot of ways that different people have solved that problem over the years and so you can go back and say well when when i was a kid um i i idolized rod laver kenny kenny rosewall those guys used continental grips and hit a lot of slices and you know can you hit a topspin forehand with a continental grip well, we probably wouldn't teach that today but rod labor did he won two grand slams and he had a lot of topspin forehands with a continental grip and yeah. then and then you say well should you have taught the way rod labor played or should you have taught the way kenny rosewell played or was that a one-handed backhand or a two-handed backhand when jimmy connors and bjorn borg came along so which form which technique was the model was it borg was it McEnroe? Those are two completely different ways to solve the problem of playing great tennis. And then within the subset of solving the problem of playing great tennis, how do you hit shots? Well, those guys really didn't even produce any shots that were that similar. So which, which model are you going to teach to? Yeah. And now I'll say this, there are, there are elements of stroking and technique and mechanics that, that through the years and through between players are conserved and and stayed the same. And we tend to focus on those and say, well, this is what everybody needs to do because everybody has done this. So like when we see someone playing tennis, we don't mistake them for somebody uh, swinging an ax or playing golf or playing cricket. Right. We, we recognize immediately that it's tennis, but at the same time we recognize immediately, Hey, that's Nadal. Yeah. We recognize immediately that's Federer. That's Djokovic, you know, that's Andy Murray, you know, that's Zverev. Oh yeah. You can immediately recognize them. Why is that? Well, because they don't do it the same. Yeah. Their t- their technique isn't the same in, in, in significant enough ways that it's been obvious to anybody in any sport pretty much that all well, these people do it. They do it differently. Yeah. So which model are you going to teach? So just the other day in class, a, a kid, we
0: were doing some bump and river where, you know, we try to guarantee every kid is challenged and is going to improve. So, you know, the top court might be all UTR 7s and 8s. And the next court is UTR 6s. The next court's UTR 5s. I think that's a good way to go. And that's another podcast. But we do some bump and rivers. So kids have the opportunity to play with different players if they're winning and moving up. Right. So, so
1: just, to, just to jump in, bump and river means what to the, to the person that doesn't know what those terms mean?
0: Oh, just uh, a lot of times in singles, for example, we'll take three to five on a court and say win two to become the returner. And then beat two or three people that are serving to bump up to the next court. So I'll use river and bump synonymously as just a way where instead of dividing the group up by skill level, we might throw kids out randomly, but in a half hour or in enough elapsed time, your top kids should be moving the direction towards the winning side and and weaker kids are going to head down. So there you go. just a progression where
1: they're winning to move up the courts. Yeah. So it's a, it's a sorting mechanism and it's a sorting and it's so it introduces variety to some degree because they're going to be playing against different people and it sorts them ultimately through the game through playing points rather than arbitrarily coach steve saying you have to be on this court or that court it's the if the player has how do i get to court one it's obvious you win exactly so although
0: there are times where i do assign courts and And that's could be by just pure, I think is the objective skill level or UTR or ranking of the kid.
1: Yeah. But, you can all, you can only do so much mixing, obviously, but right. know, in, a, in a game like that, that's, I mean, that's a good way to organize groups, I think. Yep. So, so
0: the other day when we were mixing it up, I had a kid that's a six playing a kid. That's a roundup nine and a Colorado high school player. That's a nine is, is getting up there. That's often a top 10 player in the state. In fact, this kid, did take third at number one singles in 4A. And then the kid that was playing, it was a six UTRs, a nice player out of four Collins. And the nine smokes a forehand, super, super heavy spin, plenty of pace, and the six missed a backhand and immediately looked at me and said, hey, can you help me fix my backhand? <laughs> right. And I said, well, let's, let's analyze what happened there. Uh, you know, I said, you were victimized by spin, Space, lack of time, footwork. Because of that lack of time, all these things were the cause for misses. It's. I thought your form looked fantastic. You know, the kid on the other side of the net smoked the ball, and you missed. So, but y- you have a a theory as to why maybe the this idea that you know we fix coaches and pros fix strokes is not maybe necessarily the best way to go. We we always say good form is preferred to poor form, but. And even though impact, what the, is good and impact the ball is the reason for misses, there's right. these spatial dimensions that you've helped me realize of left, right, up, back, high, low, speed, spin, pace, all these, all these dimensions that are reasons for misses as well. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, what is good form? You know, I mean, that's the, that's the fun. What, what is it really? You know, it, it varies a lot. Whose, whose form is good. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, Ken, Kenny Rosewall, you know, he's a 70 year old man or older. Is his form good? Well, it wouldn't be that functional now, but how many kids that you teach could have any chance of beating Kenny Rosewall? I mean, right. that'd, be, that'd be a big fat zero. And right. probably even at his age, he's probably 80 years old. Probably have a hard time beating Kenny Rosewall still. So, you know, what form? I mean, I, I mean, I like to say, listen, I have, I have good technique, good mechanics. Um, But you turn the lights off. How am I doing, buddy? <laughs> right. Right. So, and said, I mean that's a ridic- that's a ridiculous example. People would say, well, that's crazy. Is it? I mean, what what's missing? I mean, my technique, my mechanics, everything is exactly as good with the lights on as with the lights off. Yet yeah. I simply cannot play tennis. So my attitude is, hey, let's turn the lights on and let's let's take in all of the information that's in the environment that you need to coordinate your actions to play tennis well. And it and it's not simply form
0: yeah and i think i mean a a lot of coaches that go down the mechanical road they're going to have the software where there's bob next to roger federer and you're both looking at your forehands and we're going to try to mimic roger federer but but the skill set is a little bit different and (laughs) there's a lot going on there right so you know you and i didn't hit number one in the world and win multiple grand slams so not sure that's the best approach either although we all want to look like them ultimately all coaching methodology and philosophy comes from what we see on tour. There's no question about that. We all want to look like them. And this is where we learn the game, but that that's a tricky road, isn't
1: it? It is. And that's, and that's not even true. I mean, I mean, do you want to look like the guys look like on tour? Right. When I, when I was young, the guys on tour, were John McEnroe, and then Andre Agassi did not look like John McEnroe, did he? Right. Well, how did that happen? Yeah. Right. Well, wait a minute. You know, when I was a kid, I, one of the, the second match I ever played outside of my section, I played, I played a singles match, then a doubles match, then a singles match. And that was it, because I didn't win any of them. I didn't win many games in any of them. I was a goner. But the second match I played was against a young kid named Jimmy Arias out of Buffalo, New York. He was the number two seed in the, the boys 14 and under clay courts. And he was playing doubles with, like, the tournament director's kid. Okay? It's like, yeah. a, it's like a hit and giggle for Jimmy. Well, I'm playing with my buddy from he's from South Dakota, and here we are. We're playing against this guy. And and, and he was awesome. He was a little kid. I was a small kid. He wasn't any bigger than I was. He was a year and a half younger, probably. But he's a phenom. You know, he's got this Wilson Advantage racket. And he's just cracking the ball, semi-western strokes, just firing the rac- high racket at speed. Unbelievable. Like, whoa, that was impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so I, I mean, I saw the future, and this was in 19. 19- 75 77 I mean I saw the future and there it was but did I go home and imitate Jimmy Arias I did a little bit to say you should see the way this kid plays but everybody said that won't work he's going to throw his arm out you know semi western mm-hmm. grip topspin backhand all that stuff he's cracking it now he's going to hurt himself did he hurt himself he did not hurt himself he went down to Bolitari's, and Balateri saw that and said that's the way to hit the ball and he started trying to get everybody to hit it like Jimmy Arias Mm-hmm. so so everybody down there was learning to hit the ball like a 15 year old or 16 year old in Balateri's eyes and I went oh. home and I was like that was cool now I'm back to McEnroe and Borg and Laver and, and Arthur Ashe and Continental Grip and Straight Arm and I just played that way and I, I played pretty well would I have played better if I played like Arius I don't know maybe I might may played a lot better so mm-hmm. you know what are your models my model should have been a 12 year old kid from Buffalo <laughs> right, right. And he ended up, I mean, I got Jimmy. I don't know if people know him, he got the four in the world. I, so, I remember yeah. I mean, so you know what, and then and then to just back up a step too. I mean, for how many people are the pros really the effective model? I mean, I, I read a book uh, called Extraordinary Tennis for or- the Ordinary Player in by the early 2000s as I was evolving as a tennis coach, and the guy pointed out, look. He, this was a guy that was founded an engineering company called TRW in the 1970s. And he said, you go to your tennis lesson, and you got some tall, tan, blonde guy, and he's teaching you how to hit the serve with the continental grip. He's pounding serves. He's showing you out at the overhead with the continental grip. He's backpedaling scissors, kicking overheads. And you are a 50-year-old woman, not too athletic. You're just wanting to play some tennis. Right. And that's the lesson you're getting from some guy who's highly skilled, highly athletic, young. Do you want to play the way that guy plays? Well, yeah, you'd like to, but give me a break. That's not happening. So the ways that we try to teach people, you know, say club players, we try to teach them on a model based on the way Nadal plays. Well, you know, good luck with that. It might might work for you, might not. And, And Simon Ramos' attitude was, you know, that continental grip, that's a bunch of crap for club players. Yeah, you're you're, you're making the problem way too difficult for yourself trying to play that way. And so, I mean, I had an experience one year helping a friend of ours coach a high school girls team. And and we, you know, we had a lot of snow at the beginning of the year, like we tend to in these parts. And we had to quickly assess the team. And what are we going to do? We had three girls that were volleyball players. They weren't Mm -hmm. tennis players. And so our friend and another dad who's on the team, they're both tennis pros like me. And one of the very first things we did was we tried, we, they, not me, I interjected, because this was probably in 2009, I had already made the move from being a moron to being a pretty good coach. But <laughs> the first thing they were saying was, these girls have to, you know, we have to get that grip fixed, so they can hit overheads. And I said, good luck. You know, we got a three month season here. If you flip a ball up into air to those volleyball players, all three of them, they didn't turn sideways, they just put their racket up like they were spiking a volleyball and they pounded the overheads. <laughs> And I said, you get them in a continental grip and you turn them sideways and they're going to hit the side fence for about two months, probably (laughs) for two years. Right. 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 So those girls, one of them didn't make it to state, but two of them made it to state, one in doubles and one in singles, for God's sake. Wow. They weren't even tennis. I mean, the one that made it to singles in state hadn't played tennis. She was a senior in high school or a junior. She hadn't played tennis since she was 12. (laughs) And the other ones barely did. But you got to say, well, should, should we have gotten them to the proper technique? Should we have spent a lot of time on mechanical changes? I mean, okay, good luck. I guarantee you they would have been worse than when they arrived at that yeah. practice. sounds like like two, Three months later, they would have been worse tennis players than the day they showed up at our high school practice. Instead, they got to go play in state tournament. And have fun.
0: They might have yeah. been resistant to the change too, especially if they missed everything. So they right. had a lot more fun doing it.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, the idea that that you need to have sort of a mechanic. you need to get the foundation, the fundamentals before you start playing a game. That, that's a, that's a, There's a school of thought that says that, but the game-based approach and, and I'll give the USDA credit when they came in with their red, orange, yellow, green progressions, or no, red, orange, green, yellow progressions and so forth. Their big motto was rally play and stay. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I think that is a hundred percent right. You need to help people learn to rally the ball and start to play the game. Tennis is a hard game. And one of the reasons why I think pickleball is ascendant is because it's not as hard. Racquetball was was that game in the 70s that was just way easier than tennis and people really liked it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take two, two reasonable adults who never played tennis and you give them tennis rackets and you give them tennis balls and you send them out to a court, put them 80 feet away or 85 feet away, the court's 78 feet long, and say, here, go ahead and rally a little bit disaster very few people can do that and so you need to figure out a way to help those people get into the game and the traditional way people would say is we'll go get a lesson yeah and what they'll do with the lesson is show you how to hold the racket all right then they'll back you up to the baseline they'll toss you some balls and teach you how to swing and like you said oh okay now they've been tossed a few balls they've learned how to make a swing roughly and they go back meet that friend and once again the exact same thing happens they can't play yeah, Because nothing about that lesson was anything like trying to hit a ball that's erratically controlled by some other person over there that can't play the game any better than you can. And they go, well, this game stinks. What else can we do? Let's try pickleball.
0: So before we get into different games that we do with the FRA and whether they're effective or not, you know, let's look at the big three of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. These are guys that miss all the time. They're, yeah. they're, they're three of the best that ever lived. And they miss all the time. And I don't right. think they run and take a mechanical lesson after they miss. <laughs> and you and I have talked too about if you're, if you're going to be mechanical obsessed, I mean, you made the analogy, a good one of, okay, so we build the foundation of the house, but I want to put in a kitchen and a bathroom and the second floor and a roof and everything else. And maybe that's where coaches really come into play. But of course the game-based approach might say, we're going to build this house top down. Like we'll do the foundation last because it's tennis And so we're going to work on tactics that simulate actual points and actual matches and technique will happen. And we're, you know, there's times we'll still help a kid with that, you know, the elbows too stuck on the forehand or something, something biomechanical. But the game based approach is saying that we're going to do games that simulate actual tennis technique will follow. Is that that Correct.
1: Yeah, I would I would not put it the way you did though. I, I think the found I think you have a misunderstanding people do of what the foundation and fundamental skills of tennis are. They think that the swing and the way you swing a racket is a fundamental of tennis, but we've just we've just discovered, you know, through our walk through the history of the game, that it isn't.
0: So it's when that, parents say, I I've heard this a hundred if not thousands of times. Parents say, I wish my kid would have taken tennis lessons earlier right. because they have bad habits or right. let's make sure my kid doesn't have bad habits early. Let's right. fix the bad habits early. Okay. What would yep. you say to that? I have,
1: I, have, I, have, I have two things. One is extremely bad news for that parent is that your child <laughs> already comes to the tennis court with habits. Right. Those, are, those are called uh, attractors in, in state space uh, in, the, in the ecological dynamics world of motor control, motor learning, and so forth. So what that means is there's sort of, if you think about a landscape with valleys, I, I use an analogy of a half pipe in a, in skateboarding or something like that. You've got these these attractors, we'll call them. Like if you drop a ball into the half pipe, it goes to the bottom and it just stays there, right? Mm-hmm. So these are ways that your body wants to coordinate itself into movements. And they've done studies on this with people just with something as simple as drumming. Okay. You've got two drumsticks. You're trying to you're trying to do these these things, are they going to be in phase? In phase would mean both drumsticks, left hand and right hand, hit the drum at the same time. Okay? That's in phase. Uh, Something that's 180 degrees out of phase would be my right hand is at the top, while my left hand hits the drum. And people go bang, 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 one hand after the other. Instead of boom, boom, boom together, it's one hand, one and the other. Okay? So when they test people, most people have what are called attractors at at the at the 180 degree opposite move. It's easy for them to both to both tap both hands together and have left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. Fantastic. But some subset of people also have an attractor at 90 degrees where they're able to keep a rhythm going where the where the one hand is halfway up or halfway down when the other one hits the drum. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, it so, is. But but they already come to the thing with that. So then when you tell them, all right, we're gonna try to learn a rhythm where you're gonna tap the drum when you know, at a 45 degree difference. So it's going to, one of the hands is going to be tapping the drum and the other is going to be a quarter of the way down or three quarters of the way down. Okay. So for the people who have an attractor very close to that, maybe that's really difficult. They, Mm -hmm. They fall into the wrong attractor a nearby attractor. So people, people already arrive at a lesson with habits. They've never played. But they have they have patterns and motor motor control way that the way that they coordinate their limbs with a tennis racket to solve the problem. They come to you with that already and to say, OK, well, we're just going to we're going to make sure that person never develops bad habits. I mean, they already they already showed up with, quote, bad habits, some of them. So we need to help them explore that landscape to get attractors that are more functional instead of less functional. That's number one. But number two is, like I said, you can you can be me as a kid in 1975 and i've got great technique and now i'm playing jimmy Arias, and my technique's not functional anymore what happened <laughs> so was my technique did i get a bad technique it turns out i did because people of my generation i mean jimmy Arias was probably the most successful but he didn't play like the old timers you know the next <laughs> most successful guys i don't know paul anacone was pretty successful but not great you know i was in the i was in the era between Roe and Lendl and those guys and, and Agassi, Sampras, Courier. The game changed a lot, didn't it? It did. So when I got that good form, I want to make sure my kid doesn't get bad habits, gets good technique. It turned out I actually got bad technique for how the game evolved. Hmm. You know, it just just changed it out from under me. Mm -hmm. What happened? Well, the game changed from little, you know, 55 square inch wooden rackets that were, you know, between 12 and, I mean, Don Budgie's a 16 ounce racket. Pete Sampras is a 14 ounce racket but so there were big, heavy rackets that were swung differently. The game was predominantly played on grass than it wasn't. Um, so that went from that to, you know, polyester strings and graphite rackets. Mm-hmm. So, hmm, no, well, you want to make sure you don't get bad technique, bad form. You What you need is skill. You need mm-hmm. adaptability and skill so that you can play the game well. Mm-hmm. So not does anything go in form. No, it doesn't obviously, but, you know, be careful what you think, you know, the, the the expert pro is going to tell you, this is how you need to swing. And we're going to grind that into you. I don't think that's right.
0: So you and I have talked tennis for literally years for those that don't know, I mean, countless hours of talking tennis and just years and years and years. And we we have always called a spade a spade. There's classes going on across the country after school today that are just an absolute disaster. I mean, kids are not having fun. They go home and want to quit there is that element of standing in a line and they're just barking orders. And I sure hope we're doing it differently. I want to walk through kind of a typical front range Academy class. We're currently going five days a week and 15 hours a week for three hours at a time. We're there today from four to seven, right here in Greeley. Um, I'm in Berthoud, Colorado right now and Greeley, you know, that North, North, Northern Colorado for anybody listening. So let's walk through that. Um, we, now you even have another idea on like the dynamic stretch because, boy, I'm, I'm terrible about it because I'll tell you why. Kids show up at different times. There is no team stretch with us. We always have a team meeting, but there is no team stretch. Kids are always walking in at different times. So I, I tell the kids to warm up on their own and be ready to go, make sure they know where water restrooms is, and, and we start rallying. So I want to walk through a typical Front Range Academy class, but you don't have a huge problem with skipping a 30-minute stretch, do you?
1: Well, no, I think it's a huge mistake if, I mean, you know, I don't know about, you know, from an injury standpoint, dynamic ups, you know, I think it probably always makes sense to start slower rather than faster. But in, in right. a, my attitude is always when you're paying and these people are paying for court time and, you know, group lesson and so forth to spend part of that valuable time uh, standing around and stretching, you know, I think that's a mistake. I mean the reason that these kids are coming to this is to get a chance to play in a group with other kids and you know I want to maximize I want to maximize the amount of time they're out there playing with each other. Yeah. So yeah I mean if they show if, if someone shows up late you know I mean, it's on them to to get stretched and warmed up and so forth exactly. I think to jump on the court. I mean if if you're a college coach or you're a high school coach and everybody comes at the same time and you know you you, know, you jog around the court warm up do some stretching you know I don't have any problem with that. Yep. But, you know, the idea that you're paying, you only got a 90 minute lesson or you got two hours of you know valuable indoor court time and you're saying, well, let's all gather and stretch. I think that's moronic. You know, I mm-hmm. think it's moronic to get kids journaling, you know, writing in their journals during that time. Yeah, there's plenty of other times if you want to do that. I, I even think it's not a great idea to to stand and feed kids balls and, you know, <laughs> you know, lines and stuff. That was one of my big pet peeves about some of these high performance coaching things where they would bring kids in you know, the best kids in the area, bring them in and then, you know, feed them balls. You know, like, well, if I'm being fed balls by some coach, why do I need the next best player in the region standing next to me? How? Right, you right. know, the best training aid I can possibly get is this kid who's next in line. <laughs> right. That doesn't, right. Any, that doesn't make any sense. You know, right. You know, I have a coach back home. You have a coach back home. The half of those kids' parents were coaches. And you're going to come in here and then you're going to feed balls and tell kids what they should do. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, you know, it's just a time management it's like, what, what are they, what should they get out of this, this group? And what they should get out of your groups is, you know, ways to go through different games and play points against each other. That's the main thing.
0: You and I have also talked about groups. We won't mention any names, but groups in this area that go for three hours and literally the first two and a half hours, to 245 uh, not a single serve or return of serve was hit that's that's a mistake too Uh, yeah you've got to address the most important shots in tennis right I mean we've
1: always we've always struggled a little bit with that you know with trying to get enough serves and returns and things into the groups because it slows things down that's for darn sure but I don't know about you I never did play a point that didn't start with a serve or return right yeah every single point tennis starts with a serve so yeah I mean I I was reflecting on sort of my journey through coaching and you know, I had some kids that really liked to play ground stroke games. And I mean, I just gave that up. I never, I I personally never played a ground stroke game. You might not believe this, but as a as a competitive tennis player, I never played a single ground stroke game ever. Wow. It wow. just wasn't, the, I don't know. It wasn't the thing. It, you know what the thing was? The thing was tennis. And and I did go to groups and things in the winter where we would do drills. We'd do two-on-ones that were sort of common because of Harry Hopman and You know, we do approach and defend drills, which I still think, you know, I do a fair bit of. So we would do some, you know, skill promoting drills, games that were, you know, constrained in a way to isolate, to to draw out, you know, certain opportunities to to attack or defend and things. But as far as, you know, okay, we'll play a game to 11, came to 21. That's table tennis, dude.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) What are you
1: doing? Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I did do, you know, back when kids wanted that, when I was a club pro and they wanted to play you know, a game, games of 21 and stuff, I would put in pressure points and I tried to do this later in my career. And the people, they just griped, you know, so pressure point would be you're playing a game to 21, which is dopey. that's not tennis, but you would say, all right, if you're trying to get to, you're trying to get from five to six, if you miss it, you go back to zero. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get from 10 to 11, you miss it, you go back to five. You know, if you're trying to win the game, you know, 20 to 21, and you miss it, you go back to 10 or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'd go, well, that sucks. I want all those points. They shouldn't disappear. I'm like, well, go play volleyball go play or not no, Volleyball's volleyball is a set game they play sets in tennis if i'm playing you and you're serving at that add in five four and i lose that point where did all my points go steve mm-hmm. <laughs> am right. i any closer am i any closer to winning the match against you than i was when we flipped that coin to see who served first <laughs> Curse. Right? No. right i'm not right I, they all disappeared Mm -hmm. Every point that I want, it's on the scoreboard. Yeah. Six, four. So you got four games. Well, congratulations. Great. You got, you need to win two sets to win the match. I didn't win the first set. So none of those points, none of those games, they're on the scoreboard anymore. They're gone. So -hmm. at least that was a way to make the ground stroke game be a little bit, didn't have a serve, didn't have a return. The scoring system was stupid. Kids do it all the time. And they think, you know, and, and is it, is it zero benefit? No. I mean, you're, you're in some senses, you're playing tennis points, but God, the amount of time that the kids want to do that game—it's like, oh my God! And then I and then I introduce that kind of scoring, and they start screaming, oh, "That's not fair!" <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, okay. I mean, if you if you if you just want to come here and run around and hit balls and enjoy time with your friends, I'm all with you. But if you're gonna then gripe that you're not winning tennis matches, don't come crying to me when you're not really doing anything to prepare you to play what what looks like a tennis point or a tennis match, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and
0: I think I used to make the mistake of getting kids out there. And rally in the cross court for a half hour. And maybe that's better than fed ball, but just that mindless rallying in the cross court, which just doesn't simulate the chaoticness of an actual tennis point. We used to do a 500 drill and 750 drill. And you see this a lot for the repetitions and you know, we're, Hey, we're going to go until you make 754 hands. But again, it doesn't simulate actual tennis and kids are like, but they love it. They actually like it because they feel like they're in a rhythm. But then I tell them, what about a tennis match is ever you in a rhythm, you know, you and I talk about how zero to two times a year, you're going to play in the zone and play out of your mind. And the other 99% of the times you're not in rhythm, you know? Um, And we're talking tennis points that are usually seven to nine seconds or less and just do not involve the comfortable rallies. And I tell the kids your, your next tournament, you're going to get a new can of balls. And they might say, if they're smart, they'll say five minute warm up. And there might even be a ref enforcing that, and you maybe or maybe not didn't have a chance to practice that morning, and you have that five minute warm up and you go. Right. Like that I've got to prepare you for that, exactly. not feeling good out there and being in a rhythm. Nothing about tennis is a rhythm.
1: And no, usually- and, no, and and we text a little bit about that, and like I said I you know right before a tournament match and you're going on the court. I don't I don't have a big problem with somebody wanting to get some rhythm and timing and confidence because you want to have confidence going onto the court, but but don't for a second be confused that the quality of that warmup is going to last good or bad for the duration of that match. Right. Because it's just not the nature of tennis. It's not the nature of most skilled sports. I mean, batters go into slumps. I mean, you know, go play a round of golf. Do you feel your swings good the entire round? No. I mean, I hit with people for 30 minutes and my swing feels different. I'm feeling the ball better or worse just doing that. Mm-hmm. So don't expect that to be the case. And so when it comes to lessons and groups and things, there's always a tension between learning, which is what people are trying to do there. They're trying to learn to get better, more adaptable, more skilled, and more dexterity at this game to play the, you know, solve the problem of playing good tennis versus performance. They want it. They want to do it well. And so it's pretty easy if you're a tennis coach to set up an environment where people do it well. One of the ways you can do it is that same thing, blocked learning, do the same stroke to the same place over and over again. You know what? That's extremely good for rapid acquisition of a skill. You're going to look darn good. Like you said, you flip somebody a ball, hit it to this part of the court, fantastic. They're going to get better at it very quickly. But what doesn't happen is it doesn't carry over. It's an extremely slow, bad way to learn to play a game, uh, those skills just do not show up in the court. If you've played more chaotically, and it's one of the things I had to get comfortable with as a teaching pro, giving up on the idea of everything looking structured, everything looking ordered, allow it to look more chaotic, more error-filled, sloppier, because that's how learning takes place. Mm -hmm. Learning isn't about perfect repetition after perfect repetition. Again, Nikolai Bernstein, 1930, he he took some some joint monitors on on blacksmiths, skilled and unskilled blacksmiths. And the unskilled blacksmiths had a lot of variability in their movements, but so did the skilled ones. They were really skilled at hitting the nail mm-hmm. at their thing. They're actually hitting like a, 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 a little, I forget what it was, something like you know, hitting uh, some sort of metalworking tool. But they're very precise in that, but their movements were not precise. So the best guys had a lot of variation. So the idea that you can groove something and have the exact same movement over and over again, it's crazy, but you can, you can get people to look better if you give them opportunities to do the same thing 50 times in a row. And And that's why they'll feel better.
0: Yep. And that kind of lesson, they groove a stroke in a fed ball situation. And then what happens? They go out and they play an actual point and then they look at you and they say, why did I miss that coach? Bob?" yep,
1: Yep. exactly. (laughs)
0: there's right. about eight thousand different reasons why that might have missed
1: right oh yeah and they're always looking for some you know i mean I, i've had you know kids in here groups you know they're hitting the ball and miss it to the left what happened why did i miss that so well, that's where the strings were pointing <laughs> goes yeah, back to the they, ball yeah. impacting the racket racket exactly. path. Racket, angle. yeah exactly you've got the path of the racket you know which is the velocity of the racket in three dimensions and then you've got the face orientation of the racket and then where'd you hit it on the strings
0: so, so let's go back to the FRA. We're doing okay so far because we didn't do a thirty-minute warm-up. I didn't do a twenty-minute stretch. I didn't make him run lines for thirty minutes. We've always said you and I, if you're going to miss the third shot, you don't have to be in shape for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, yeah.
0: I, I used to run tournaments all the time. I haven't seen a kid get tired more than twice. You know, this is high altitude tennis, so let's right. not waste, especially precious. Indoor court time right. conditioning, you right. know, do that on your own. And if you're yep. not, well, fine. I know if I can force you to do it, you have to do it. But I'm still wasting court time where we right. could be playing points.
1: Yep, that gets so back. We, that gets back to the environment. You know, you got the environment constraints. You've got the individual, the human constraints, and you've got the different task constraints. And one of our environmental constraints here in Colorado is the altitude mm-hmm. makes long points either not going to happen or they're not very stressful not very demanding when they do happen because it's really mm-hmm. difficult to sustain high ball speeds and you know you have to move a lot and hit high ball speeds it's mm-hmm. i mean almost nobody controls the ball well so the points are pretty quick or or easy if people just loop the ball back and forth the points can go on for a long time but they're mm-hmm. not physically demanding so you mm-hmm. know not, you know if, if i was a tennis coach in in maryland you know, I would put a lot more emphasis on, on movement and, and, you know, going deep into points and having to come in and out of corners and playing long, tough points because they do play long, tough points. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we don't see that up here. Right. At yep. any level, high level. I mean, I've coached college D1 college tennis up here and it's rare to see a long, tough point.
0: Yeah. So we've knocked out the up. We're, we're ready to take volleys overheads and serves. And maybe I've got them, you know, round to a cone or round with purpose. I'm roaming around and, given tips as best i can and we started playing some singles points so we got bump and river and we're doing singles points and you and i agree that's a good way to go cuz now you're mixing it up a little bit after i've sorted them by level and then you know recently we we did the game attack and defend that's a great game i was we were watching the singles points and noticing that nobody was coming in on a short ball there was such hesitancy to attack and then we have attack and defend where you have a player fed drill where the champion is by themselves and they feed a ball in and then you have two or three albeit in a line but it's a quick line and that kid is going to come in and decide if that ball is attackable or not and they refuse the feed if they don't deem it attackable but if they play it they have to come in and play the point out and then there's a certain amount you have to win to become the champion and you can bump up or there's a certain amount to where the champion can reset everybody receiving the feed to zero that's a that's a great game you and I have both done.
1: Yeah, and, and you know one of the things you said there that I've always believed, believed is key to it is, the, A, the player feeds it, so the player is learning to feed short balls in some places. That's important. So they need to feed short. A lot of the kids are a little hesitant to feed, and they feel like they're not a good feeder, and sometimes the feeds are erratic, and I have to emphasize that's important. Because what we don't want is simply rote behavior from the attackers where the ball is fed short, they hit the approach shot, they come in and they play the point out in a a predetermined way. We need them to be perceiving information from the environment and learning. Am I able with this ball to attack in a way? And it's going to be different for each person, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody who is a very comfortable attacker might take a fairly deep feed and say, I'm going to knife that, get in there and put the volley away. So they Mm -hmm. see opportunities that someone else doesn't see based on their skill skill level at the time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's a great game for encouraging people to explore ways to finish points, to come up to the net and finish. One of the things we did in that game was uh, I would offer a you know, you'd automatically go over and be the king if you had a, or queen, if you had a drop shot winner oh okay on that short ball because my my take on the modern game is too many people are just one-dimensional left right left right so you would get a short ball and you'd try to blast it by somebody left or right i go that's nothing wrong with that that's one dimension let's explore another dimension let's explore the front back dimension to the court let's bring let's bring the player in Yep. yeah i've heard
0: you call that the left right bias yeah And Mm -hmm. just too much of side to side and Mm -hmm. not enough up and back and then of course High and low. I'm not saying you're pushing, but when you give a good player that loves pace and flat shots, when you give them some loopy spin, you'll be shocked how oftentimes that kid misses or is out in front of it.
1: So I'll take that even one step further. I have a friend who coaches a D1 college program, and he was having a kid who was having a lot of lot of success elevating the ball, you know, getting getting weak replies. But you know what the kid did after the weak replies? Hmm. Elevated another one. Mm And you're like, well, wait a minute. So what you said there is you'll be surprised how many people will miss. Yep, that's awesome. If you can hit a shot that they miss, you've won the point. But what it'll also do was it el- will elicit weak replies, which will elicit the sort of ball you- you've sort of trained for in attack and defend. And now you got to have, well, another step. Don't just redo the thing where you're going to loop it up there again because now all you're really doing is waiting for an error. And mm. I got to tell you, if you're playing D1 tennis, and you're just looping balls and you're figuring, oh, I'm going to get errors, you're sadly mistaken. People aren't that bad. They're not just going to miss that ball. They're going to give you balls that afford you an opportunity to attack it, to hurt them, hit drop shots, whatever, but they're not just going to give you the point that often. Mm-hmm. So that, that guy misunderstood that totally. <laughs> he, he was <laughs> doing the right thing, and he got some errors, but then he just kept going to that same bank. It's like, yeah, well, that, that's, that's bad. So you need to take it to that next step. So moving on to even, this is a
0: class I did the other day, but so if we then play some finished game without going into details how that works, Mm -hmm. I mean, the main reason I play finish game is there's going to be an insurrection and a mutiny if I don't play it. But you and I both think that the fun is a huge reason. So, you know, to do these things. So the kids love it. Probably the most popular game we ever do. Um, Drawbacks, it doesn't involve the serve return of serve. Advantages, it puts you in some crazy situations with the kids are allowed to mean feed. And, but at least then they're working with the spatial dimensions and crazy spin and they're learning to see the ball off the racket and where, you know, learn where they need to move their feet to get in position to receive the ball. So there's, there's value in that. It puts you in some crazy chaotic ground stroke situations and they love it.
1: Yeah. And we should quickly explain the game finish. It's got two ends in it because we got it from the country of Finland. It's not a finishing game where you're trying to finish the point. And, and it's a team game. It's two players against two players usually, but it can be three and three. And you're only you're not playing together like doubles. You're alternating coming in there. And the, the difference between this and a typical ground stroke game is that in finish game, you're encouraged to, when you have the ball in hand and are starting the point, you're encouraged to try to hit as difficult a shot as you possibly can to your opponent. You're trying to win the point outright with that feed if you can. And one of my frustrations with kids over the years with that is they get lazy. They don't do that. They just flip it in. And I'm like, well, we might as well just quit then. Because there's no point in this game. Now it's just a groundy game with teams. I'm not interested in that. That's a waste of time, in my opinion. But if they're actually doing it and they're trying to – some kids will loop the first feed. Like we just talked about. That gives people trouble. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Send up a high high, deep ball to them. Great. Some kids will chop one down into the court. Great. Some kids will you know, just absolutely toss the ball in here and just pound it. I mean, we've played that game finish game at times we're allowing them to hit an overhead a serve yeah from, from behind the baseline go yeah you can do that pound it yeah and, and if these people i mean i told some of our most skilled kids i said listen if you're so good at this that you're hitting a winner every single time you feed the ball and it kills the game i'm gonna have to be forced to change the game god bless you i hope you can do that right And i'm ready i'm ready willing and able to change the constraints of this game because you're too good right Let's bring it on yeah and no one's ever done it yeah no. And we've had some pretty damn good kids come through there and usually they're playing against other pretty good kids. Yeah, absolutely. But it's hard. You know, I mean, so when we did the overhand one, we did have to constrain it to say for some of the kids, you have to serve it to one half of the court or the other because you get yeah. the full length and you're yep. just pounding it. So so that's a great game that way to, to put someone in trouble, right? With the ball out of your hand, right? So it's not yep. representative of real tennis in that sense, but it puts them in trouble. And they need to learn how to get out of trouble and you need to learn how to capitalize when somebody's in trouble. So yeah, yeah. it's it's fun as heck. And it's, and it's a really good game given that it's not actual tennis. It's a yeah. pretty good way to help people learn certain skills.
0: Now. And then at some point during one of my three or four hour groups, we do, we go four hours in the summer, there's going to be some sets and tie breaks happening, especially if I have the room and court availability, which is trickier in the winter, but easy in the spring, summer, fall. And of course, I know you agree with that. I mean, we'll get out and play tie breaks of seven and 10 and sets. Um, you know, these kids that say, Oh, I seems like I always lose 10 point tie breaks. I mean, the answer to that is put yourself in that situation as many times as you can. Let's right. get comfortable in there and start to relish that pressure. Right. I mean, that's yeah. obviously that's, so that's a big part of what we do is that mass play. And yeah, sure. It's supervised. I may or may not say something to a kid, but uh, I I jump in sometimes if I see something, you know, but it's usually more, and this goes to where the coaches, you know, how do kids learn in the coaches role? But it seems like a lot of times it's like, Hey, why'd you go down the line there? That should have been cross court rally ball. Or that you should have come in on that one and attacked. You know, you need to do more with that first volley. Or, you know, why didn't you run around that and hit your forehand? Um, you know, you were pulled dead on the run. I saw three times you're pulled dead on the run to your forehand. And you tried to crush a winner down the line. Whereas you might want to consider kind of a loopy cross-court shot to get dip, to get uh, time back on your side and recover. So that that tends to be what I say. I think I'm going in the right direction with that, I hope.
1: I think so. And the way you phrased almost every single one of those things that you phrased, I believe you phrased it in a good way. Rather than saying, I'm Steve Williams. I know best. <laughs> yeah, you right. should have done this. You right. must do the following. That's that's bad in a couple of ways. Number one, really? You know, are you that smart? You know, in every situation, what every right. kid is dealing with and feeling and you can, you can tell them that's what you should have done. Right. Guaranteed. I don't think you're that smart. You don't think you're that smart. And you don't want to give that impression to the kid, number one. And number two, it gives the kid the impression that, well, there's a guy that's got the answer in the back of the book and he I need someone to tell me what to do to learn. That's not true. The information you need to learn to get better at the game is all there for you to pick up. And Steve's role is to help you pick that up, to help you see that and understand your options. And so the way you phrased it was, you know, I saw you did this, you know, maybe you should have considered the following. Can you, what about this option or that option? That's a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. And you can constrain, you can reduce the number of options that they have to choose from pretty well. And you can really accelerate their learning by framing things that way, rather than just saying, you should have done this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's really going to give them a tool to understand why it was and that they're going to be able to pick up on that on their own in the future when you're not there? Which you're not going to be there for 99.99% of the points they play in tennis and Mm -hmm. matches and things. So I think that's good. Yeah, I mean, you're going around. You're giving them. You're giving them the information. You're asking questions. You're helping them understand what it is that they need to be thinking about when they're or noticing when they're playing, like buying time, like you said, deprive the other guy of time. How do you get time? All of that. It's great. And then
0: as we wind down this podcast, I'll tell you how we typically wrap up the FRA. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the Olympic doubles skyball, but to me, that's not the best game. That's the one where the champions are at the net and you have a line with you feeding. And then if you win two in a row or two out of three with the coach, then you run across the net and chase down the lob. Right. And that's just, that's not my favorite, but you and I have one that we call Steamboat Skyball. I'm not sure where that originated, but Steamboat Skyball is one that you and I both think has a lot of value. It's the kids love it, it's fun. And then whether they know it or not, they're really working on a lot of different things, including transition and really closing that net hard, which we'll talk about. You can talk about the benefits of that game when I explain it here. So with Steamboat Skyball, you have two people with the coach feeding, um, and then everybody else is on the other side. And you can, in the winter in Colorado, there's some times where there's eight to ten on a court, and that's okay. You have two with the coach, and you're rifling in feeds. It could be a half volley, or a transition volley, you're, the kids are forced to charge. The kids that are 8 or 10 on the other side of the net are forced to charge, and they take a feed, and then they take another feed, and the, all that are just volleys right to them, often with space. If they win both of those, or two out of three, but I usually do two in a row, if they win two in a row, they run to the champion side, and a lob goes up to the next team, and that's the winner ball. And, of course, there you get to teach about the overhead, the all-important swing volley, which wasn't taught in our day. I <laughs> not being yelled at if you swung at a volley. But you and I know that you got to hit topspin volley sometimes and swing away. There's a lot of merit to that. So that next team swings away. That's the winner ball. And if the lob feed is a winner, well, then you just keep rocking. That team runs over to the champ side. The next team gets a lob. And sometimes you have that dynamic where there's 10 winners in a row off the overhead swing volley you're just rocking a large group but tell us about you want those kids to close hard and they're learning some things there huh
1: yeah this is this is one of my absolute favorite games and the the quick backstory on it is when I was teaching uh, at a club in Boulder we had a kid from Steamboat Springs and I had a teammate college old college teammate that lived up there and was a tennis coach up in Steamboat and so this kid had come down from that club to this club and we were playing skyball because we're stupid and (laughs) You know, we have, as you describe, it's a two on two game. So it's a doubles game and the coach is on the side of the challengers and the champions are at the net. And so that, so if the challenging team wins, the net team, you know, leaves and they come back over on the side with the coach and the challengers chase down a sky ball. You had a really high lob and, you know, indoors, that's a problem, but outdoors, you can get pretty high. And so they run around the net post and they get over there and they, the ball bounces and they try to play the thing back. And you go, all right, what's everyone else in the group doing at that time? Number one, nothing. That ball's in the air and two people are just running over there. Okay, great. So no one else is engaged. Number two, never in my life have I seen somebody have to run from one side of the court to the other to track down a ball that's coming down out of the sky. Right. Right. That's stupid. Um, So I I don't know, it was a dumb game. But, you know, we did it because it was fun. Um, And everybody wants to play it and everybody does play it, it seems like. But this Mm -hmm. kid, Will Melton, he said, well, here's how we do it. And it was flipped. So the coach was, was on the side of the champions who are on the baseline, two of them, and the challengers are at the net. And then all the other kids, I've done it up to, I don't know, 16 kids, 18 kids on a court. It's still rocking. Um, And they're all back behind the far baseline. And, and as a feeder, this is the only feeding drill game I really ever did toward the end of my coaching career. And Mm -hmm. I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but I was the greatest steamboat skyball feeder I love it because there's a lot of elements to it yeah and you got to scale the feed for the skill of the volleyers and you're going to have because it's a big group of kids usually you're gonna have a wide variety of skill because it's the end of the group we always did it at the last thing like you did it's extremely high energy it's fun we get all the kids together but that means a wide variety of skill levels in almost any setting so you need to as a coach you need to encourage you know you need to feed it in a way that the kids can finish the ball off of your feed so what a lot of people do, and I believe it's a mistake, and maybe you do it this way, is the the, the challenging team, the volleyers, start you know around the service line or in normal volley position. I do not do that. I make the kids start in a position that Louis Caille would call Closeys, the Canadian guy that mm-hmm. coaches LTA doubles. So mm-hmm. they can. T- I want them to be able to touch the net with their racket in their position, their ready position. Mm-hmm. And I fire the ball to good kids, or I hit medium pace to the medium kids, and I just give sitters. The kids who are less skilled, and I encourage them to put that ball away. Mm-hmm. I want them to learn to finish, finish with an angle, do something, get a winner. Because the reason you come to the net, the reason you start at the net, the reason you come to the net is to win points, to hit mm-hmm. winners, and that's the position in the court where you can do it. I give them a ball that is winnerable, and so that's number one. These people are learning to finish, and some of them have to. I mean, I'm firing at some of these kids, and they and they do it. And then so, and then the next thing is when that team does win and they can, you, can, you can control kind of whether they win or not by how you feed it. I mean, if I don't want that team at net to win, I'll fire it right past them. And they'll go, <laughs> what's going on? And I go, you lost. Get out of there. Next team, right? So, yeah. I, so I control that. So I, I get, you know, we don't have the same winners all the time. I mean, I, I laugh at the end when some, you know, we have the champions at the very end when we call game. You know, the guys that are over, your girls that are over on my side, they're the champions. And I laugh. I say, well, I picked you. You know, I, I control who wins this game by the feeds I give. But then the next phase, like you said, is so when that team wins at the net and they're coming over, the the lob goes to the next team coming in. So mm-hmm. you've got two people who are running and they're going to hurry over as fast as they can to try and defend. As the feeder, I wait usually until they're at the net post running. So they've got a fighting chance. And then I'll feed a ball of varying difficulty for the person coming in. If the next person coming in isn't very good, I'll feed a nice lollipop short lob. They can come in and just pound it. And Mm -hmm. they'll hit a a winner. If they had a clean winner on that shot, they get to automatically come over. So there's Mm -hmm. a high incentive for them to take the ball. If they let it bounce well, we hoot and holler, what are you doing? Don't let it bounce. That's great. Because it gives them too much time, right? Yeah, Yeah. You you go nuts. And so you get them to come in. So they're moving forward, hitting an overhead. They're hitting it under pressure because they know if they succeed, they go over. They know the whole group is watching, right? Mm -hmm. And that's stressful for a lot of the kids. Mm -hmm. Most Mm -hmm. kids crater, and they first start playing Steamboat Skyball. <laughs> right. They're tragic, tragic. Right. At all of these things, they're tragic. So they do that. If they win that point, if they hit a clean winner, they come over. If they don't need to, if they miss, it just counts. If they hit a shot and the other team gets it back or touches it, it's just one point and we keep playing. And then from there, since they're not on top of the net yet, they'll get a more of a midcourt volley, you know, a normal volley, right? Yep. Or if that team then loses and the champions stay over, the next team comes in from the baseline and they get a transition volley yeah because they're moving forward into that position and you feed it to them vary the skill sometimes it's a short hop sometimes it's a floater so you vary that so boom and the game goes on and so yeah you can get this thing going where if you feed short enough overheads you can get these kids literally just running laps around the court for a minute and they're gassed and you can see that, oh man they can't hardly make it anymore so then you don't get you give a hard lob and then they stop and now they're playing again and you can sort of you can sort of, you know, control the intensity of the thing at the end. And I never go more than I would say 15 minutes. It's 10 to 15 minutes for me. They're gassed. They always want to play more, but frankly, the way I repeat it, they don't have the energy to play more. Yeah. It's and, so fun. We, and we send them out the door, sweaty, happy, clamoring for more of that. And I'll tell you at, at the club I worked at toward at the end of my, at the end of my teaching days, we had a lot of kids. We had one girl that was a three time NCAA champion in doubles. Uh, we, and we didn't work on doubles other than that. And we had a lot of kids that we had a couple kids that won a sectional tournament doubles, which, you know, for our area, you know, they weren't these two kids. Well, I mean, you're like, if it's the, if it's the Langs, sure, they're going to win, but Hmm. you know, these guys were modest, you know, they weren't great singles players. They won a sectional doubles. Wow. And we never worked on doubles. Yeah. But we did, (laughs) but we did every single day. We did Steamboat Skyball. I love it. And yeah, so, it keeps yeah.
0: a big group rocking. It's fun for anybody watching. I it's the one time you can pile 10 on a court yeah. and not worry too much about it. You Twelve. know, I 12 I is like the
1: ideal number.
0: Yeah, it's just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll modify how I run it based on a couple points you made there. But um Yeah. Um I guess we'll wrap we'll wrap this one up. Um I think we have some good information out there. You and I were joking. If more than four people listened to it, we'd be ecstatic. <laughs> so if you guys have questions and comments, we'll address those in the next episode. And we don't have a, we don't have another episode planned as far as the title and the subject and the topic. It's not planned. We'll figure it out. We, I know B.O.B. created a seven-page list of ideas, and I sent some, too. We actually have a mountain of material, but we may respond to an email that comes in or, or current events of the day. You know, it's usually going to be FRA-related and Colorado tennis-related, particularly middle school, high school, better kids. But we could branch off to the tour. Um, We don't know, so we'll keep it flexible as far as what we're doing. We don't have an agenda for that, but we have a mountain of material.
1: Um, Right, and you know, I mean, I'll I'll listen to this podcast again, and I'll cringe at something I said, and we'll maybe come back and correct it or something. (laughs) If you say, "Like, I I didn't get that point across as well as I as I wished," and maybe we'll readdress some of the things that we talked about in this podcast in the next one. And you know, obviously, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of somewhat repetition because we're talking tennis. We're not going to be we're not going to be talking about other stuff. So we'll be going over. We'll be going over tennis and group formats and lessons yep. and all that stuff. Yep. When I tournament, asked Bob about, format.
0: yep. When I asked Bob about a podcast as an idea, you literally said everybody else is doing it. Why not us? And uh, you've given our academy ideas and good advice over the years as our kind of one of our mentors. I always joke if you put a resume together and built a website, you put us all out of business. But thankfully, you're retired, semi-retired, up in the cabin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've been I've been
1: semi-retired the whole time I've been a tennis coach. Right, right. Seems, so, seems like. So we'll been. keep
0: utilizing your knowledge, and uh, but this was a fun one. Um, you know, in the sphere, to be honest, we we trashed one from last week, didn't we? We it was a disaster. I'm learning we're learning as we go, the technology part of it, but there's 60 minutes we had to scrap for a bunch of technical reasons. So, um, just in the spirit of being honest, so this is really number two, but we're calling it number one, but that's right. okay to get out there.
1: Yeah. And maybe we'll revisit the topic of, of number one on at a, at a future date.
0: Absolutely. That, yep. That was about tournaments and rating systems and rankings. And, and actually that one came in from a FRA dad that had emailed. So we want to get back to that yep. and respond to that main point, but I'm already doing that. So, um, with that, guys, we'll we'll wrap this one up. I'll we'll figure out how to share this on Spotify, YouTube, or however else we're using that anchor platform. And but we have successfully figured out how to share it between us and now we gotta figure out how to get it out there and, and see if we have some listeners and, and see what our feedback
1: is. So um that that, that that's it. What do we forget? Outstanding. I think that's it. Good times. And uh thanks for doing this and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good.
2: Talk to you Tuesday. See ya.
1: Bye bye.